When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This is Andreas Steno speaking uh, to you live Monday, the 21st of November. We've basically seen a uh, resurgence of the US dollar in uh, today's trading action alongside slightly lower equities, but is something happening beneath the surface here? We've basically seen a tendency towards normal risk-on, risk-off patterns resurfacing. And could this be driven by a major move in focus from global central banks? I will ask that question to a fan favorite on Real Vision, Greg Weldon, founder of Weldon Financial. It's good to have you back on the platform, Greg. Welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, Greg, let's uh, do first things first. Um, I asked the question today whether something major is happening beneath the surface when it comes to global central banks. Do you concur with that view and what is it? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I think, you know, it's funny because you can kind of trace it back to July almost at the press conference after the Fed meeting with some of the things Powell said then. In August, he was forced to back that up, you know, and really backpedal from those comments because of the way the stock market reacted in the interim as if, you know, okay, the Fed's not going to be hiking anymore. And all of a sudden we're back off to the races with the big rally. And the Fed couldn't let that happen from here, not with inflation where it is and not with the backdrop where they were too late to, to the party to begin with. So, and I think though that, that putting that aside, that he had to backpedal and it hadn't gone far enough because they didn't move quickly enough, that you do have a shift in the narrative kind of taking shape. And I've talked about this, you know, we've talked about it too, stagflation. You see stagflation everywhere, developing in a lot of places outside the U.S. where it's much more along in kind of the process of unfolding. And it's like you have some, some central banks that have almost come out and said, not quite verbalized it to the degree that, you know, okay, this is the green light, but they're making waves towards, we're going to shift focus from deflation to the stag. Because you have such deep economic turmoil in some of these countries. And again, you know, this is, an, uh, this is a global dynamic with inflation where inflation is so high in other countries. Food is a major component in a lot of countries' inflation numbers. You know, you take a country like Sweden and food inflation is 17 plus percent. I mean, this is a real problem going forward in, th in terms of thinking that the economic growth is going to meet the expectations that have been laid out. And that's why you see so many central banks paring back their expectations for economic growth. So I think you can point a few central banks out that have made waves towards shifting the narrative from fighting inflation to protecting growth. And I think that will spread. And I think that is a big deal. Why do you think central banks are shifting gears? Is it driven by market developments or forward-looking indicators for growth? What, what's sort of the trigger here? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think it's market developments, frankly, because the markets have been pretty one-sided in the way they've approached this. The Fed's going to keep tightening. They're going to get higher. Uh, you know, the, the, the high rate now is almost pushing 5%. And you'll take a look at some of the other places like Sweden, we mentioned, you know, so still some expectation that they will hike rates, but they've been kind of soft. And the degree to which you have retail sales down 5 plus percent at a time when inflation is 10%, 
and it, you know, and the central banks at 175, it's like, okay, which, you know, they're kind of caught in the crossfire, caught in the middle almost. Household consumption is actually a more timely number, and that's been really soft too in Sweden. And then you take a country like Canada. Let's look at Canada. You have a 375 official rate. They're expected to hike 50 basis points more in December. They only hiked 50 when they were generally, and why they expected to hike 75 in October. Inflation there is 6.9. But you look at what the expectations are from the central bank. And I read their monetary policy report, which is about 50 pages long, was fascinating this, this time around. And in that context, they've really scaled back their expectations for economic growth. And if and if you look at the yield curve, you know, in, in all these places, frankly, you know, flattening or going into aversion or inverting further. And the case of Canada, and I'm not saying I, I'm making this case, but I could if I, you wanted to have a debate and you gave me this case, I could make it. That at 375, even against the 6.9% inflation, Canada is one of the few countries that actually may have a policy rate that's appropriate if it were a recession. Because then you'd be looking at something of a real policy rate of negative 250 to as much as 450 points negative in a recession. Now, it's easy when you got, you know, interest rates, at, you know, inflation at four and, you know, interest rates would be at four and you're at zero. A little bit different, you know, in the more recent history of inflation and monetary policy. But the fact of the matter is, if you were to think Canada's going into a recession and inflation, we know, based on base effect and energy alone in the first quarter, inflation rates will come down. So you could make a case that at 3.75, the Bank of Canada is appropriate in, in looking forward to a recessionary outcome for the economy because their real rate is now negative around what you might expect it to be during a recession. Greg, I, um, I noticed that you mentioned Sweden and Canada a lot. Um, and one thing that I would like to uh, point the attention to in relation to those two countries is that they both have extremely high levels of private debt. Uh, in particular in mortgages, right? Um, we've also seen how the Swedish housing market and the Canadian housing market uh, have started to to um, to lose momentum clearly over the past six months. How important is the housing market in this context, um, in your opinion? That's huge. That's another good question. I mean, and throw the UK into the mix too. Mm. And I mean, one of the things they did in the budget too is they're going to rescind the property tax cuts. I mean, come on. They want, they want to install a 23% tax fuel hike uh, on, on gasoline in March and they want to rescind property tax cuts at the same time they're, you know, printing money so they can help people pay their electrical bills. I mean, that's how insane this has gotten. But yes, when you talk about Sweden, you talk about Canada, you talk about the UK, you have property markets that have been inflated. You have property markets where the governments tried to tackle some of that, let some of the air out of that bubble by using regulatory policy because they didn't want central banks to have to raise rates, you know, before this inflation bout came. So there was kind of this agreement between governments and central banks that governments would tackle the housing issues and the inflated home prices. But I'll tell you what, the most recent numbers were really dour in Canada, in particular, housing starts numbers were horrible. And you look at a place like Vancouver, where the declines are double digits year over year. I mean, they, it was just a really bad report. Toronto, same thing. You know, multifamilies leading the way, but single family also, single family urban housing starts way down, you know, coming from high levels, but coming down fast and hard, like we saw in the early stages of the U.S., where the mortgage applications started to fall. And all of a sudden it was like you had a collapse in the mortgage market, you know, here in the US and the mortgage bond market that not a lot of people talked about. It's gonna take a lot to like kind of repair the damage done there in terms of being stimulus the next time you need it. Mm -hmm. 
I wanted to play a soundbite for you, Greg, in relation to this discussion on housing and interest rates. Uh, it's from a discussion I had with uh, Michael Guyatt uh, a few weeks ago uh, on this exact program on whether we could actually expect yields to drop as a consequence of the recession now. So let's listen to Michael and get back to that discussion. So it's interesting because in the context of a bear market, I go back to path. What if yield were to drop? What if you have a risk-off period after this, you know, melt up, I think we're in in stocks, meaning stocks go down and treasury yields fall, which is consistent with risk on risk off dynamics, treasuries being the safe haven again, which hopefully I can capture my funds. Okay, if that's the case, what happens to 30-year mortgage rates? They drop for a moment in time. What happens to at the margin housing? A feeling that you should buy a home now before rates go higher again. So you can see a scenario where you could get these, these, these moves higher in sentiment and pick up in housing activity just because for a moment in time, there's a little bit of a relief with yields dropping, right? Which ultimately would still probably result in more risk off at some point, right? But uh, that could result in some kind of optimism actually for housing to actually hold, or at least it can go up a little bit before going lower. You can find the entire interview from the Real Vision Daily Briefing a few weeks ago on the Real Vision platform. Uh, but back to you, Greg. Um, Michael's point is that we may see a slowdown in the pace of interest rates basically now as a consequence of this lack of growth around the globe. And ultimately, there is a risk that this will sort of refuel the fire in the housing market. What do you make of that discussion? Well, I, I think it's going to take a lot to refuel the fire in the housing market, but that's not to say it couldn't refuel the fire in a couple of other places, because I do believe you're going to go through this period of kind of shifting narrative. Bond yields have a lot of room to fall in terms of some of the Fibonacci corrections and some of the long-term moving averages. I mean, you know, yields shot up so, so hard, so fast. It was fast and furious. And I mean, I just do have to point out too, that by the same token, that when the two-year, uh, the U.S. two-year uh, yield, no, Tino yield was 30 basis points. And the two-year Fed, Fed funds forward swap was 80 basis points. In short, the two-year note was like a gift trade. I mean, it was one of the easiest trades of the year, 2021 into 2022. It's possible we're seeing the flip side of this to a lesser degree, but still the flip side of it in the sense that sands a gigantic rally in energy, which frankly right now looks like you may go the other way. You're going to have a base effect beginning in February, March, April, May, those four months particularly strong, where you're going to see a big downward impact on energy prices as it relates to CPI and other inflation indicators. We know, I mean, it's a mathematical certainty at some point inflation will come down and probably could go to zero. And then the Fed will create, you know, basically claim victory over inflation and so on and so forth. And I think that would be a, you know, a real boon to the bond market. In that case, I think it also has to do with a lower dollar. And I think that's really key to all of this right now, because a 20% year-over-year dollar uh, rate of appreciation, which you just recently had in the dollar index, when you have dollar versus gold of 30% on a 12-month rolling, 52-week you know, rolling basis, I mean, that has always led to some kind of problem down the road. And we know how pressure has been you know, applied to emerging markets and so on. So I think if you have a bond yield decline that actually softens the dollar, which is the way I think it will play out. You could see a lot of these commodity markets get reheated, particularly in terms of the industrial metals, which have gotten crushed through liquidation. The swaps have gotten just pummeled. I mean, you've gone from really bullish backwardations into contango because all the speculators, they buy the front months. No one's playing the back months. So it's in the front months that they liquidate. When you have 20, sometimes 30-year lows in the inventories of these metals, zinc, nickel, tin, and copper, all of them very low 
you know, very low levels of inventories outside of China to the degree that the market is priced in as if it is a bear market and there is an ample supply of these metals. That has to be reconciled. A dollar breakdown here would go a long way towards reconciling that. The flip side of that would be energy, and, and maybe we want to talk about that too, but uh, a, a market that has not reacted to dollar strength that may now be reacting to dollar strength and maybe a rotation in the commodity sector out of energy into the industrial sector and into the precious metals even, maybe. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I tend to like that trade as well, by the way, but uh, I, I wanted to get your take on the most recent price action in the uh, in the oil price. Uh, I think we can bring up a chart on the uh, most recent price action, Claire, uh, chart two. Um, but I mean, we had, first of all, extreme volatility today because of a couple of headlines from OPEC. Um, it, it seems that if, as if it was basically fake news that OPEC considered increasing the output. Uh, it wouldn't make sense to me either. But if you look at the price action of oil right now, hovering just uh, around the 80 handle in in, um, in, uh, in crude oil, what do you make of it? It looks bearish, doesn't it? It is. We, we sold a short last week, Thursday, overnight. And, uh, you know, it's kind of got lucky in the sense that we had a cushion right away. And then we had a big cushion today, which they took all of that back. I have a couple of thoughts on OPEC and why they might or might not say certain things. But to me, again, it's a market where it is not reacted to the dollar. And if you want to price in the dollar, the oil has a lot of downside. Then you want to look at the technicals of the oil market. Well, the technicals suggest that the levels you kind of just violated were key levels, key longer term levels. And that you're looking at something like you know 20 to 25 dollars of, of downside here in crude that could come fast and furious if you know react to the dollar if the dollar doesn't come off really strongly and then you kind of take the situation around inventories i mean you know you have seen this really low level of inventories in distillates particularly and in gasoline as well but particularly in distillates but you've also seen a couple of weeks of increases you've seen big throughput from you know crude oil that's getting taken in by refineries and they're starting to increase the inventories of both distillates and gasoline as you go into a build seasonal period. So you're starting to catch up a little bit there. And I think when you look overall at oil too, and, and the SPR was released. I mean, it came, you know, it was a big decline in oil inventories from last week, reported last week from the previous week. And everyone was like, oh my God, that's so bullish because the big decline in, in inventories, except it went to producing product and product inventories went up, which is more critical. And the SPR was released, which is one of the reasons it declined so much, which is certainly not bullish for crude oil. So to me, I look at like you have a fundamental situation that's not great right now. It's not really bearish, bearish, but it's certainly not bullish. And it's not almost maybe not even supportive without OPEC. And then I could think of some reasons why OPEC might say, hey, let's let the price drop here another $20, $25. And certainly there'll be certain OPEC members that would absolutely not want to do that. But if you look at the big ones, you know, you also have kind of the oil, U.S. oil productions back above 12 million barrels a day. You have some of these areas where maybe if the price was lower, you might squeeze out some of those marginal producers. And maybe, I'm not saying this, but it's a potential way you got to think about it. Think of all the angles. Maybe it behooves OPEC to, to let it slide some, even if some of those countries, Angola, Nigeria, and a couple others that we know, uh, wouldn't really be real happy with that. And they might cheat. And then maybe you have even more downside. 
Yeah, that would be a really interesting uh, price action unfolding if that happened. Uh, but you also talk about the link to the uh, dollar exchange rate. Uh, and if I look at the price action recently, we can uh, bring up chart one, Claire. Um, the dollar actually bounced off the 200-day moving average quite solidly today, right? So what do you make of the US dollar in the context of the commodity markets? Yeah, that's a great point. It's one I was going to bring up myself. It really does. very obvious. Bounced off the 200-day moving average, has a decent decline already. I mean, it was, you know, it was, you know, about to breach 120, came all the way back down to 111. I mean, that's a pretty big move. I mean, people have gotten kind of immune to the size of the moves and the volatility we have, but on the dollar basis, when you talk about contracts and the futures market or whatever, and these moves are like huge, man. I mean, they really are. So I think the dollar's had its first wave down, but I think the dollar's peaked. I really do. And uh, I think one of the things I noted this morning in terms of the dollar was the weakness seemed to be centered in Asian currencies. Thai bot got hit pretty hard this morning. And that's always one to keep an eye on, just like the Czech Corona is in Europe. The Thai bot is to me as kind of a second derivative of, of the bigger currencies, you know, Singapore dollar and Asia and certainly the euro in Europe. Uh, but I noted that this morning. So, I mean, it's tough to tell because if you do have this kind of recession and you have a situation, for example, just to kind of tie a weirdo thing and connect all the dots. Interesting in the context of what's happening in the UK bond market is to note that corporate bonds, all right, corporations are now going, it's like what I call direct to the lender consumer you know, marketing. They're going basically to their bondholders and they're trying to swap out bonds for two years, 7% bond, oh, we'll give you 15%. There are some corporate bonds that are so desperate for cash and they can't approach the bond market you know, as it stands in the UK that have offered 50% yields to, to their investors to swap out bonds. You know, So within that context, you always have to keep in mind the dollar could explode at any time if there's a dollar debt risk, a Yankee bond, you know, event. And I don't necessarily see that happening, but, you know, we know what dollar debt is out there. It's enormous. And that is always something you got to pay attention to and something that could blow up at any time. So I'm always trying to be cognizant of that. I don't see that as this here right now. I just see this as a bounce off the 200-day moving average after the dollar's gotten filleted pretty good. And relative to the forward Fed funds futures, the dollar's acting crappy. I mean, it really is. This is a terrible price action if you want to look at it that way. If we assume for a second that the dollar has actually peaked, does that make you sort of interested in buying equities across the pond? Would that be a good trade in such a scenario in your view? Yeah, I, you know, I, I want to bite my tongue. I want to go like just get a vice grip and close my mouth right now because I hate to say it. But yes, the correlation is very clear. Dollar down, stocks up. And, you know, that... That's been one of the reasons that stocks have not performed when, you know, maybe they might have otherwise. I don't know. I think, frankly, I think the stock market is living on borrowed time. But I do think you have a window here where you get a shift in the Fed narrative, you get a shift in central bank narrative around the world, and you have a situation where the dollar is coming off. Yeah, you could see a bunch of money rush in. You could see stocks go higher. You know, I kind of, I actually kind of like the action in the UK. I mean, it's lagged so much. You think, well, the UK can't perform because they're in such a bad situation relative now. They haven't performed for a long time. So, I mean, it's like they're so underperformed that maybe coming out of this, there's some ray of hope down the line. For sure, I think the Bank of England would be one of those that would flinch first in terms of shifting the narrative, if not outright shifting policy uh, direction. And that might be really positive for the FTSE. Um, so, you know, I, I don't like having to kind of want to like stocks here because I don't, don't like the fundamental story as it comes to the economy. But where I see the bullishness in stocks is kind of interesting, too, because it's energy, industrials, and financials. So that kind of goes hand in hand with the dollar down theme and a, a less hawkish forward Fed theme. And 
some of the near-term technical action we're seeing. Mm. Makes a, a lot of sense to look at it uh, that way. One thing that I would like to discuss with you, given your view on global central banks, is whether they risk refueling inflation a couple of years down the road. Um, what I've seen in history, what I've studied uh, other inflation cycles, is the risk of a double top if a central bank moves too fast, uh, acknowledging that the inflation is on its way down. For example, if the Fed pivoted right now. What do you make of that discussion? Is a double top in inflation a clear risk scenario three, four, five years down the road? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, you, know, the, you hear the Fed talk and they consistently say the same thing. Restrict slightly to semi-restrictive for a longer period of time after they're done hiking. Okay. Now I think that's unrealistic. And I think that is the Fed being the Fed. They have to be vigilant. They, you know, the Fed has puppeteered this market beautifully from whatever perspective I feel that they waited way too long to start to move and they moved way too in way too a lame fashion at the beginning. Um, but they've, you know, the, the way they have come with their communication, which if you remember in 2018, when interest rates are like zero around the world, and the Fed's talking about our star and how, what are we going to do if another recession comes when interest rates are at 50, 50 basis points? You know, one of the things they talked about was communication will become a more important tool in our toolkit. And that's exactly what we've seen here too. And I think the degree to which the Fed has, oh, we think another 75 is proper. And we think that we have to be restrictive for way beyond that. And, and they have, Powell has said it himself personally, a big mistake would be staying, it would be reversing too quickly and coming out of our tightening too quickly. He said that on multiple occasions. I don't think it matters. I think they'll deal with the situation. I think the situation will dictate that. Having said that, though, I think there's a bigger picture here involved. I think you're talking about a, you know, a 40-year downtrend in inflation and interest rates that is over. And I think that when you're going to move next towards easing, okay, you're still going to have prices higher than they were before, all right? What you see, the biggest trend that doesn't get much attention, and this is very true now and evident in the UK, is a lower standard of living every time. I've seen this so many times. I mean, you get the stock market comes down, they print a ton of money, you get the reversal, right? You've had this wave, each wave gets bigger, each wave requires more money, and now we have fewer goods in the mix, and now you have turned everything. To the degree that I think it is now, yes, inflation will trend higher, the lows will be higher, and the highs could be back where we were, yes. And I think central banks probably will make that mistake because they're gonna look at the economies. And I think, again, that taking, just looking at, okay, we're in the US, just look at the US economy. All right, well, it doesn't look that bad. The consumer seems kind of healthy. The consumer discretionary stocks are actually performing real well, even though they just got wasted over the previous six months. Um, and, but the yield curve is inverted like we haven't seen since really, you know, 1980s. And what I think that means is it's not just the US, it's every country and all these other countries that can't afford it as much as the US can. And I think there's a bigger wave of kind of an economic downturn that you know still has to be realized. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Greg, what do you think will happen if central banks start easing while we still have a scarcity of energy and goods? 
Well, I mean, that's almost by definition going to happen because don't we have kind of a scarcity of energy now that we've gone to green? And now, I mean, you know, I, I said this, man, when, if you, you might not remember being in Europe, but when the high school, when the, rather the college students took the field during a halftime of a football game between, I was believe it was Harvard and Yale. And they commandeered the field and they ran a big protest and demanded all the college endowments de disinvest from energy. And the college endowments basically said, we'll do that. Well, first of all, it's the greatest front-running opportunity of all time because these you know, places, the endowments are huge. Billions of dollars, Harvard Endowment is a huge investor. So I think that you're talking about you know companies that were disinvested, that have a lot of debt, and now are expected to continue to produce gasoline at the level of demand that is going to be much higher than the green energy people would think it would be because you don't have enough nickel, cobalt, the lithium to get all the batteries on. You need new technology to meet your goals in terms of getting electronic vehicles on the road. And I think that leads to higher gasoline prices overall over the long term. And it's only exacerbated by Fed policy when they turn next, which you know they will. Yeah. Uh, let's turn towards a couple of questions from our members, Greg. Um, we have a great question from, from Ralph, uh, wanting your take on um, what I consider the softs within the commodity space. So cotton, wheat, sugar, soybeans, stuff like that. Yeah, I like them. And there's a lot of kind of, you know, autonomous stories there that are bullish on their own merits. Sugar, cotton, for sure. The whole soybean complex, I like a lot. Uh, I, I like coffee now that it's had kind of its correction, too. Um, so I like the sector as a whole. I like anything that has to do with food. I mean, it's mm. just, you know, bottom line is longer term food supply is still going to be something that's at risk. You know, anything that has to do with water, I think these are good investments overall, generally speaking, from a long-term perspective. But yes, some of those commodities I specifically like for their near term, this season, next season, uh, fundamentals. And I think that they've kind of, you know, it's almost what they say, the baby with the bathwater type of thing in some of these commodities, where they've come down to levels that relative to the fundamentals are kind of like, yeah, I really like them. I mean, they're kind of value here. And I would say sugar, cotton. The, the bean complex, uh, even orange juice, some of those things uh, look very attractive to me. Uh, another question from uh, our member, Bo. Uh, he's asking you whether you think this current crypto mayhem um, could cause sort of a market contagion spilling over to other asset classes, and if so, which asset classes? Always possible. I mean, always possible. You're talking about, you know, billions and billions lost, and that has a knock-on effect. We've seen it before. I think it. I, I don't think there's systemic risk coming from this. I don't think it's that big enough now. You're not talking about you know a big insurance company or Lehman Brothers. I mean, you know, is it going to be pain? There already is pain, obviously. And frankly, it's kind of easy to see coming. I, I don't even understand the people that are shocked by this. I just you know, to me, I I did a speech in February, first week of February of this year. And I called it sock puppet strategies, and I likened the fact that you had at that point 350 coins tokens. I, don't, I won't call them currencies, trading on Coinbase, all right? Most of them were meaningless, worth nothing, the whole nine yards. And it's, if you remember, the tech bubble, 1999-2000, all right? I called that crash too. But if you remember that, one of the things, the identifying kind of features and characteristics of the tech bubble was a sock puppet dog that was used by Pets.com as their, you know, as their spokesperson in all the commercials. And every celebrity in America wanted to be on a commercial with the sock puppet dog from pets.com. It was the biggest, uh, one of the biggest Super Bowl commercials in history in, in 2000. And the fact was that the most valuable part of the company was the rights to the sock puppet because they didn't have any infrastructure to deliver pet food, which was their business. And a couple months after the Super Bowl, 
they were bankrupt and they sold the sock puppet rights for $20 million. And that was all that was left of value in the company. To me, that's a lot of these crypto linked investments. Do I think there's credibility there and validity and some long-term nature to all of this? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we bought Bitcoin 8,800, sold at 54,000. I'm a trader, so I'll trade just about anything. But I think the degree to which this had to happen, you had to have a washout. It reminds people that doing this is not easy. There's no easy way to get rich overnight by buying any one thing and plowing all your money into it. I mean, frankly, there's a lot of classic mistakes that have been made here in some of these things. A lot of telltale signs that were all over the place that people didn't want to read. And this is something new, and this is something new, and it is something new, but it's also the same old song and dance. And that's what happened. A follow-up question from uh, from my side in relation to potential spillovers to the uh, tech sector and equities. Um, you consider interest rates heading lower uh, into the uh, next couple of quarters while we have this crypto carnage ongoing over here. Uh, probably a pro and a con for the tech sector in relation to spillovers from other asset classes. What do you make of the technology sector relative to other equity sectors in this, in this environment? Uh, I'd say one word, underweight. <laughs> that simple. Until I see otherwise, it's just an underweight. And you don't really know where all the chips could fall, frankly. I mean, there's a lot of dots that need to be connected here. I, again, I don't think it's a systemic risk. So I don't think this is something that the Fed will ever get involved in or, you know, there'll be bailouts or whatever. I heard the, the, the you know, the one guy from uh, was talking about trying to find a $3 billion bailout so he can make customers whole. That's one of the most ridiculous comments I've ever heard. I'm going to get someone to give me $3 billion so I can make my customers whole. Uh, yeah, no, Ponzi scheme? What are we talking about here? I don't know what you're talking about. But yeah, I, you know, uh, I think tech is an underweight. That's that's about as simple as I can as I can make it. We have time for a final question from Christopher. Um, he's interested in your view on the sterling pound versus the dollar, given uh, all of the comments you have on uh, on UK. Yeah, I don't dislike it. Let's put it mm -hmm. that way. So I think the lows might be in, but I don't think it's really going anywhere either. Um, I would be more interested in watching Euro Sterling because it has closer breakout pivots where it maybe could, you know, maybe you could see, you know, Sterling breakout in that context, or I should say Sterling Euro. Um, but I mean, you have so far to go to get any kind of technical juice in Sterling against the US dollar right now that I just think there's other places I'd rather be trading them. If this is something like you own it, I'm not necessarily dumping it here. I do think that it's a soft sideways to up, uh, and I think the low is probably in. I'll try to summarize today's discussion for the uh, audience, Greg. Um, you basically think that global central banks will move from focusing on deflation part of stagflation to the stack, meaning that they could move towards an easier path in the coming quarters, meaning that bond yields could drop and potentially give a bit of positive tailwinds to the equity market, at least short term, but uh, the, uh, the key word is short term here. Uh, otherwise, if we look for equity sectors, um, energy, financials and industrials on overweight versus tech on underweight, and um, then I guess the dollar has peaked. Anything I missed? I mean, some of those commodities, man. Watch these Watch these oh, base yeah. metals. I really, the base metals, I and mean, they're getting whacked here again today. The pressure metals are down, dollars up 96 points. But I just think, man, that there's a compelling story there that if you get the technicals to kick in, you're going to see some real fireworks in the in the industrial metals as well as some of the sauce we mentioned and maybe even the precious metals. 
Uh, Greg, I've made it my um, trademark to always conclude the show with a meme. And today I'm going to show a meme in relation to um, the headlines made by OPEC earlier today. So I guess they're currently discussing, uh, discussing behind closed doors whether to add juice or oil to the fire right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully they will. At least I will uh, salute that scene from European soil where we have way too high energy prices. But uh, anyway, Greg, it was a great pleasure to host you. And I know that our audience loves when you come on air so thank you very much for joining us my pleasure you guys do a great job so i'm happy to uh, contribute anytime thank you greg and um, thank you for watching out there we will be back in the uh, real vision daily briefing tomorrow with jared billion guesting the show see you there what's up revolutionaries thanks for tuning in to the real vision daily briefing for more content like this Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.